This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this special two-part episode is Seraphin Aguilar. Seraphin is a bull of a player. Maybe that's why they call him El Toro. His sound is big, his chops are strong, and when he cuts loose, you best get out his way. But Seraphin is also a very thoughtful and insightful man who's on a mission to be a positive force in the world. Seraphin has played with legendary Pancho Sanchez and was able to fulfill his childhood dream of touring with trumpet giant Maynard Ferguson. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. I am so happy to be spending time today with my good friend, Mr. Serafine Aguilar. Serafine, what's up, man? Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing? Doing man. great. Oh, man. Hanging. Uh, hanging with my man, Jose, here. Man, you <laughs> looking to too, real, huh? you looking too good. <laughs> Look at you, man. All dressed up like a big boy. Yeah, well, you know. You know, uh, it's funny. I, I do these things that I always try to maintain some semblance of respectability, you know, because it all goes back down to watching uh, Winton throughout the years. And, you know, that guy's always sharp, man. He's not playing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, you and, know, uh, and I think it's important, you know, to maintain that respect, you know, for these things. You know, if I'm going to talk uh, and people are going to listen. I, I don't want to come out looking all like a typical, you know, garage musician, just all messed <laughs> up. You know, I want, I want to look good for you guys. So. Oh, yeah. Well, we we'll, you know, appreciate it. Yeah, because, you know, it's funny, man, because you, you go back, especially like in the, you know, the, the early days, cats were just, they were always decked out, you know. Look, look at like, you know, pictures of Dizzy back in the day. Picture, even you know, like go back oh. to Pops, man. Pops was always clean. You know, to the T's, man. Yeah, miles. Always, always. Um, I mean, and that's like you know, that's everybody's uh, uh, benchmark, you know, because that guy was fly with those Brooks Brothers Italian cut suits. Yep. You know what I mean? He was always on point, decked out. You know. Yeah. And even when he was, even when he was uh, hanging out, he was still looking sharp. Yeah, yeah. And then so I just think about that, you know, just keeping the legacy of that, and I like it. I like that that adding that level an extra level of, of, of attention to things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like what you're playing, you know, man, it, it, it's the attention to details, you know, that sets you apart. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of playing, uh, you know, we are still, uh, by the time this, uh, episode airs, we will still be in the midst of the pandemic. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, how, how, yeah. you, how you managing with that, bro? Uh, you know, uh, I went into, uh, into dad mode when this first hit. Um, and you know, I kind of thought to myself, I mean, it's, it's, it was pretty obvious from the beginning that this was no joke and that this was going to take some time and really that my profession was going to cease to exist for a while because I'm in the public eye and I'm amongst a lot of people all the time, you know, I I come around thousands of people, if not more uh, on a weekly basis, just from jobs. Right. You know, so with that being said, and and the nature of of what we're going through uh, this disease, um, 
I knew immediately once the things started coming out and they were talking about it and then how serious things got, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to make a living doing this for a while, at least not the way how I was accustomed to. So I just, I just started working whatever I could find just to put food on the table. For the first three or four months I did that, you know, and then, um, and then finally unemployment kicked in <laughs> and little things here and there. Finally, it's kind of, you know, picking up and doing things like this and doing some online teaching and, uh, but little by little, you know, trying to find as, as we refer to it as the new normal. Yeah. I'm even, it's, I mean, I got, I got the time to do it. So I, I I'm, uh, I'm looking at online courses to learn more about internet stuff so I can be more proficient. So I don't have to uh, rely on other people and also just uh, learning more about all the things that I should have been already had on check, you know, on point, all those things I'm kind of working on them now. Yeah. So, you know, I'm learning how to use my equipment better. So I don't have to call somebody or so I don't have to go somewhere else. Um, I'm learning, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm going to start taking some courses on uh, on programming and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, maybe eventually I'll be able to do an online course and be able to kind of like do what uh, some of these, t- these these CC institutions have where they'll have the curriculum set up and you just pay a subscription fee. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, you go as you, you take what you want as you need it can't keep it but you have access to the site all the time yeah so if you want to practice with me at any time at three o'clock in the morning you can practice with me you know and if you want to take it a step further and maybe there'll be some hands-on stuff mm-hmm. so that's what the intention of that is you know and just kind of wrapping my head around the fact that this is going to be more an electronic thing than a live thing for the most part yeah you know and that's really what, what i've been doing and and uh I have to say it's fun not to have to do the things that I used to have to do before. Yeah. So it's it's kind of given me a chance to be able to fall in love with my instrument again and and practice things that I want to practice as opposed to things that I have to practice to keep myself in in a certain type of shape. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm working a lot more on on my fingers and and my tonguing and my sound and as opposed to just being pulled in a china shop. You know, keeping everybody at bay, you know, because I'm playing so strong. Yeah. Which, you know, has had some deleterious effects on my, uh, on my embouchure. You know, it's uh, 30 years of, of being a professional trumpet player, having to do the things that I do for these last 30 years. There's some damage, you know, we all go through it. Um, I'm sure you've been through some things, you know, I, as I've gotten older, my teeth have shifted a little bit. So there's a little bit of damage. I mean, it's just what I do is not easy. Mm-hmm. And anybody that does this, just playing the trumpet in general is not easy. But when you have to, the physicality that you have to play with when you do some of the things that I have to do, the you know the damage your lip. You're playing on a cookie cutter. Yeah. And uh, that that will, when it comes to flesh against metal, metal always wins. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And especially you know um, the demands. Regardless, you know anybody who says that that uh, you you can play without pressure, you know, no pressure playing, you know, that's that's bullshit. You know, you, there there has to be a level of pressure, uh, and especially to well, play, you know, to 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 play the kind of demanding stuff that you have to play. Yeah, I, that's a uh, that's one that they try to teach you a weird scholastic dogma that I've always come across uh, with with especially with new students that are coming out of college and maybe no disrespect to 
whomever their teachers were, you know, um, I find that a lot of, uh, a lot of them have a misconception of that. And even when they see me playing and they think that, oh, well, this guy, he's not even working. It's like, no, that's not the case. I'm working really hard, but I'm working efficiently. Yeah. You know, and uh, so these guys will come to me. To, Why can't I play high? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? And after about five minutes of listening to them, it's like, okay, well, I, I think we have to start from the beginning because we, we need to rewire your brain a little bit to understand that that this is not a, this is not an instrument for the faint, you know, for the faint of heart, as they say. This is you you, you got to really. I'm not saying you have to be He-Man or the Incredible Hulk, but but you got to put a lot into it to get something out of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that that idea of, of finding. Uh, that delicate balance of, uh, yeah. you know, the internal compression, uh, you know, it, matching it with the resistance in the horn. And, and yeah, there's a science to playing. And, uh, you know, some guys are really good at, at, at doing that kind of nuts and bolts uh, approach. Some people, it's just, it's just natural. They kind of, you know, it just kind of mm-hmm. falls into place for them. Uh, not saying yeah. naturally they don't have to work, but 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 it, they, they can just kind of, they've kind of figured it out, but they can't explain fit- it. Yeah, they're physically in tune with their body and and with the way how it works. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the kind of, that's kind of the way I I work um, intuitively. But I, I'm a geek at heart. I I like to figure things out, and I've been fortunate to have some great teachers that have been able to express to me in terms that I understand what I do on a physical level, you know. And and then I take that and I just keep on mulling over it in my mind and meditating on it and thinking about it. And, and, and that's how I, 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 that's how I figured things out, you know, gotten over. It's really coming handy in those moments when I'm injured and, and I kind of have to, you know, fake the funk for a little bit. And that has some, that'll get you over the hump. But when you, the, an ambusher tends to get confused very easily. And uh, those those situations, if it wasn't because of the fundamental knowledge that I have about the mechanics of the way how I work and the way how I feel the instrument works, I would probably not be able to dig myself out of a lot of those issues, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, we've had over the years, we've had a few conversations about, uh, you know, approaches to playing and, and technique uh, and corrective measures uh, basically and you've helped mm. me with, you helped me with a couple of things and i really appreciate mm-hmm. that but yeah i mean you you certainly do seem to have that really uh good balance between uh you know the the intuitive method uh and then that the kind of analytical approach because i mean let's face it that what works for you is not going to work for everybody um, exactly and you're able you you have you've demonstrated to me uh the ability to take the ideas that you have that work what works for you and then figure out how to tweak them uh based on on what a, a player is going through themselves so i mean, like what what are some of the um things like if you're you're working with somebody to to help them to go through the you know let's say uh, in, increasing the range because you know everybody wants to do that um, yeah. You know, what, what are what are some of the, the first things you're kind of looking for or listening for uh, to give you a, a good baseline of, of where people need to, to move to go forward? Yeah. Uh, you know, you did mention we're all we're all different. We're all this is not a one size fits all instrument. Um, and as a result, the like you said, what works for one person might not work for the other. 
but there are some basic tenets to, to the instrument, right? Uh, one of the biggest misconceptions um, that I've come across is uh, the, the fallacy that more air is required to play the higher you go, right? And it's really not more air, it's faster air, which is why we talk so much about compression. Bobby Shu, one of my favorite teachers, uh, is a big proponent of breathing a certain way so that you are already creating that compression or that air velocity inside your body before it gets to the horn, right? Right. Uh, so letting, getting it through their head that it's actually a lot less air that is required to be able to play in the upper register. What you have to do is physically find a way, whether it's in your mouth or in your abdomen or in your equipment, uh, find a way to create that air velocity so that your lips vibrate faster, because that's all it is. A high note is just your lips vibrating faster, right? The lower you go, the slower the vibration and the, you know, if we were to look at an oscilloscope, it would be something like this, you know, big old slow wave. And then the higher you go, it just starts getting faster and faster. And that's almost, you know, and there's also something else to, to remember when it comes to the upper register that the instrument itself can only hold so much air. And depending on the size instrument you're playing, it's really a little bit of air that it holds inside of it. So you start trying to mash all kinds of air through the horn, thinking that that's the way to do it. Uh, what you end up doing is you just, it's like anything else. If, if you try to put too much water in a hose, it's not, it can only take so much before it needs to get relieved. The instrument's the same way. I remember Bobby talked about specifically that the air goes in circles. It kind of tumbles mm -hmm. and it needs to tumble at a certain velocity and a certain pace. And if you try to push too much air into it, then you break that sequence of events. And once you do that, then the air stops, stops moving through the horn properly. So these are things that I'm always thinking about in my head when it comes to my instrument and when I'm here at home practicing and I'm fine-tuning things uh, is, is that, is maintaining that, that, uh, that airflow to keep it always correct. And I tend to see that a lot of the guys that have issues, you can, see, you can hear it in the sound usually. There's going to be the player that has, is really in love with the sound and just tries to be, just you know, just way too much. Yeah. And then you'll have that. You'll have the guy that has the misconception of the, that we talked about, who is like, "Oh, I need to be very timid, and when I and I just, I, it doesn't look like I'm moving or I'm playing or anything." And then they're not putting enough energy into the instrument to be able to produce a sound. So I have to go in there, and kind of figure things out, and and try to get them either to back off, which is usually the case, uh, or to get them to come out. If if they're playing. Too, too loud, it's kind of hard harder because usually that somebody whose aperture is pretty wide open and getting and, and I'm the opposite. I, I play I know I play loud and it sounds big, but I play with a pretty tight aperture. Um, I'm not wide open like some guys and that's probably due to the fact that I play on slightly larger equipment than, than what most lead players play on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and if I were to be that open on, on the equipment that I play on, I, you wouldn't hear a note. You know, the, it's, it's something that, that the guys on smaller, uh, more efficient equipment uh, can do uh, because the mouthpiece isn't that big, in the, big to begin with. But when you get into where I am, which is like close to like a 1D box size, um, it, that, that doesn't work. You know, you have to. And, and I don't I don't necessarily I cannot play wide open. It's just it doesn't work for me. I have to be very focused. My aperture is very focused um, and I'm just riding an airstream. I'm using my tongue. 
a lot of people don't know the importance of, of the tongue itself and how it works um, to create more compression in your oral cavity before it even gets out of the horn. Um, I, there's a book that I was very fortunate to get my hands on when I was a kid by the name of the, uh, uh, the Irons, 27 uh, ex- uh, Lip Flexibility Exercises for Trumpet and Cornet. Got that book when I was 14. And the preface uh, talks about the importance of the tongue. And it's got diagrams of how the tongue moves from register to register, from low register, O, to the upper register, E, and extreme register, ish, right? So I kind of wrapped my head around that. And I'm a kid. I'm not studying with anybody yet. And I got this book and I started, you know, just trying to apply that, figure out, well, I mean, that's what the exercises in the book were for, because it tells you, when you move, when you're in this passage, move your tongue here. Do this, do that, do this, do that. So, through muscle, through repetition, you create the muscle memory, and you learn how to use your tongue. And before you know it, I kind of got the hang of it. And um, then I exposed students to different ideas. You know, besides the tongue placement itself, um, uh, I'm a good whistler, like like melodies and stuff. And I got that from my dad. And the way how I whistle, I have my tongue in between my molars. It's in there, in between the molars. For some reason, when I was a kid and I picked up the trumpet, that's the way how I played. For some reason, just in my head, that's what happened. That's how I play the trumpet. So I've effectively cut the oral cavity in half. That creates more compression. There's a lot of little things that are happening inside me physically that are creating more compression that I use as tools so that I'm not... I'm not killing myself to get these things out and it facilitates the ability to do these things. And those are some of the things, uh, tongue placement, tongue arch, uh, the support from obviously from your abdomen, not the diaphragm, the diaphragm, the misconception there too. Something else that Bobby talks about, the, the, uh, the diaphragm itself is just a muscle that pulls down the lungs. It doesn't actually compress them. Right. So, Oh, you got to support your diaphragm. No, you got to get your diaphragm out of the way. That's what it's supposed to do. And then you got the muscles around the rib cage that help you compress the air out, right? So once again, I was fortunate. My father was into yoga uh, as a young man, uh, yoga instructor, and he would make me do all these crazy breathing exercises when I was a kid. It's like, what? So I have a, a good control and good feeling for my my breathing apparatus. Right. Just innately because of what we did. So try to teach them about that, the importance of how to take, how to breathe properly so that you're not hyper-focusing and hyper-tensing muscles you're not supposed to. Another thing that I think that kills a lot of people is the amount of physical tension they use. Uh, one of the things that used to, to make me, uh, was so impressive about Maynard for me was his ability to be able to play in the registers, the registers that he did with what appeared to be relative ease. You know, um, I, I mean, I'll go out on a limb and say it was pretty easy for him, you know. Um, but I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was in such control of his body. Even before he went to India and got into the whole uh, yogi thing, you know, and the, the, the Eastern philosophies, even before that, you could see it. He's very, he, he's very aware of his body. He was very, very aware of his body. And I try to do that too. So as to not, hyper flex muscles that don't need to be flexed because another thing that I learned from powerlifting from my years of powerlifting was that 
you only want to use enough energy to be able to lift the weight and that's it. And if you start, if you pick up a five pound dumbbell, like you're trying to pick up a hundred pound dumbbell, it's not going to work because you're going to kill yourself. And by the time you get to the hundred pound dumbbell, you've already burnt everything out, just getting there. Right. So I, I think of that when I'm playing in all registers, especially as I start to ascend, I'm making sure that I'm not overexerting myself in any way. Another thing that, that, I, that I always see is when people tank up, uh, you know, it's, it's something in the Maggio book, you know, when you take a breath, take a breath like you're a, a drowning man going down for the third, third time. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, that's what it says in the book in the yeah. preface, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, because once again, what ends up happening is that, then this goes back to my 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 powerlifting days, uh, in, in the ergonomics of the body, the way how the body works, biomechanics, I guess, your muscles are weakest when they're fully extended. Right. So if I'm doing a curl, we'll, we'll use a curl again. And I have my elbow and my arm completely straight. What ends up happening is, is that that bicep muscle and those tendons are exposed to injury at that point because they're so stretched out that that's the weakest point uh, of the uh, concentric of the eccentric movement. Yeah. Right. Concentric meaning contraction, eccentric meaning extend extension mm-hmm. or extending. And then we also have static. So there's three forms of strength. There's concentric contraction eccentric extending and static means holding it in place right yeah you're using all three of those movements when you play too yeah uh and if you take a breath that's so big that your stomach is out to here and you're turning red and you're about to pass out well guess what you've hyperextended all of the muscles in your rib cage all the muscles in your back all the muscles in your hamstrings and glutes you know what i mean and you've put yourself at a disadvantage yeah so i sit down with them i go no 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 that's too much that's not enough. It's usually too much. And it's like, and I go through the analogy of the dumbbell. Well, no, you take, get a good amount of air, you know, but don't overdo it because then you're going to start. That's when I see a lot of people get hernias. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they'll, they'll rip things and they'll, or they'll hurt their back. And it's usually for that reason that I see it's you take a way huge breath. So there's a lot of things that I'm looking at. And then one of the last things that I, that I, talk to them about is the tongue placement. Um, uh, I'm an anomaly in that I started when I learned how to play, I taught myself. And uh, what really worked for me to produce the sound is to tongue with my, with my tongue through my, through my lips. Later on, I found out apparently that was wrong as, as an adult, you know, hanging out with at, at USC with the classical guys, because they tongue with their, tongue behind the teeth and to make it nice. And, and for what they do, it works great. They're classical guys and they can't have that much of a percussive sound in their attack, right? But in my world, I kind of need to have that pop. I need to have that kick. And that's just the way how I picked up the instrument when I first picked it up was I couldn't get a sound any other way than well, I get I get with Bobby and then Bobby's looking at me. He goes, what are you doing? And, you know, I said, well, this. He says, huh, there's no wonder. He says, and then he talked to me, explained to me about an exercise that he has to teach a lot of guys called spitting rice, where he just would sit yeah. there, put a little piece of rice, or whatever, lint, you know, you don't you don't have to do it. He said he would do it. He would get rice and just spit it out, like you got something on your lip, right? 
so I, I go through things like that with them. And usually by the by the and it's and, and I always tell them it's a long process because it took you a long time to get here. And it's going to take you a long time to get out of it unless you're very in tune with your body. Uh, so be patient. Some people are. Some people think I'm just blowing smoke up their back end. Uh, and and that's OK, because, you know, it's this instrument is not for everybody. This, is, this instrument is a very humbling instrument and uh, requires a lot of patience and a lot of perseverance because one day you're up, the next day you're down. And uh, and then you have to try to figure out how to, how to get yourself out of there. And that's where I come in to help a lot of people out is, is to kind of like walk them through the what I think is wrong and what I think will help them out. And usually I would say nine times out of 10, I can I can get them back to where they need to be and improve the range just by going through little things like that, diagnostics and and actually not focusing on the upper register, focusing on the lower register, focusing on the sound. I've noticed that the fuller your sound is, whatever, even if it's a brilliant sound, you know, guys that have the smaller equipment, the more efficient equipment, even if it's a brilliant sound, as long as it's a full sound, a full healthy sound, that means that you, you're going to have good range. And I can figure out what to do with that from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's kind of interesting thing, because uh, I know for myself, um, you know, I, I've struggled with my sound, like loving my sound. And it's mostly because um, I had teachers like one teacher in, in particular who's like, oh, your you know, your tone is too brash or you know, your tone is too bright um, when. Yeah, it, it certainly could have, uh, you know, used a little bit of uh, mellowing out. I, I, will, <laughs> I, will, I will admit that. But, you know, then again, it's like, you know, I, I was aspiring to be a lead trumpet player and not uh, a classical player. And I, in everything that I have done from that point forward, the thing that's got me through has been that kind of uh, having a little more edgy sound that can cut through when I'm playing, you know, when you're playing with a 10 piece funk band and, you know, you've got to play those earth, wind and fire charts and, and pop out those high, you know, F sharps and G's and A's and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It can't be that kind of law sound. I mean, it's gotta be, it, uh, it's, it, it's gotta be it, like it, a laser. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, it's, it's a tool, you know, uh, and you're not going to go, uh, to a job site with the wrong tools. So why would you show up to the wrong musical situation with the wrong sound? I mean, you could easily kill yourself trying to 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 to, to approach a, a commercial musical setting uh, with that type of sound, with a more symphonic, less brilliant sound, because it's never going to cut through, and you're going to have to play louder and harder than everybody else. I've seen it time and time again. You see a guy in the back that might not have the prettiest sound, but it's bright, and it cuts through, and all of a sudden you're in a section, and really everybody else is covering up his deficiencies and he's sailing through, you know, sailing through the whole thing, cutting like a like a hot knife through butter because of that sound where everybody else is hurting and you can hear him a mile away. Yeah. You know, uh, and so I think it's a huge disservice. Another thing that I see too is always get these kids that come up with, you know, like a 1C, 3B, yeah, talking in Bach terminology, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the equivalents are across the board. Box seems to be the stand the uh, the status quo. Yeah, yeah. As well, it's, far it's, as it's, terminology, it's, it's, a, it's the standard for most people, you know. Yeah, it's it's the standard, and it's become it's you know it's kind of like Q tips, right? That's not yeah. really what they are. Yeah, you know, it's it's a swab. Yeah, but because they are so prevalent that everybody just calls them Q tips. Yeah, you know, so it's not it's not a knock on any other brand, 
per se. It's just it, we're, we're all kind of been indoctrinated into that um, system of measurement. So they come to me with these mouthpieces like, I just can't get, I just can't, you know, I, I want to play lead and I, I, I want to cut through the band. And it's like, well, what are you playing on? Oh, you know, I'm playing on, you know, this instrument that's a 480 bore and, the, you know, 10-inch bell. And the, I'm playing on this uh, small uh, E-flat horn mouthpiece. It's like, well, how about we just try to get you into something that's more modern that's going to give you the sound that you... Which is my biggest gripe with with uh, with the collegiate world. It's like they gear everything towards classical music. Well, how many people are going to play in a symphony? Let's be honest. Playing in a symphony is like uh, you know getting the NFL draft or you know or getting uh, drafted into the NBA or some other huge you know sports uh, thing. It's the likelihood of that happening. There's so many of us, and there's so little chairs that you have to be realistic. Yeah, you know, uh, I like I love classical classical music. I love listening to Sergei Nekarikov and Maurice Andre and you know Jerry Schwartz and all these people. I love that stuff. It's gorgeous. Am I ever going to make any money doing that? Nah. You know, I've I've been fortunate to do a few movie dates where where I because of the equipment that I play on, I can mellow my sound out quite a bit. You know, and and I can I can blend in a section or play like a solo. You know. Uh, but the reality is, is that that's not how I make my living. I make my living by playing in corporate settings, in in wedding bands, in movie soundtracks, or in recording studios with uh, pop bands, or playing in salsa bands uh, and things like that. And 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 in those situations, I cannot go in there with a foofy sound. I remember for a long time I was like dead set. I'm gonna play huge equipment when I was in my early twenties. I used to play on a on an MF horn, so mm-hmm. a 470, and a 3C that I bored out, because uh. I because I was dead set. I I don't care what anybody says. I want to sound like Freddie Hubbard, and this is what it takes to sound like Freddie Hubbard. And I still had my range, but boy, let me tell you, I think a lot of the damage that I suffered to my lip is because of those years of my stupidity. You know, of, of just I could crank out the edge, but I mean the amount of work that I would have to do, and you know that's the things you do when you're young. You don't know yeah. any better. Um, and even Bobby would be like, what are you, crazy? Why are you doing that? No, nah, no, nah, I can do it. I can do it. I could do it because I was strong and I could heal. But the older I get, the the less the body wants to react the way how I want it to. And the more I have to think in terms of efficiency and of, of longevity and what it takes to maintain that longevity. Yeah. And, you know, things start to, yeah, I went from the 470 to uh, Bach 43. And then I, or actually, yeah, Bach 43. And then, you know, um, and for that Bach 43, I went to a con constellation. It took uh, some coaxing uh, from a great trumpet player by the name of Brian McDonald. And he's like, you need to try one of these horns. And it was a con constellation 36B, and he was playing on it. It's like, this is what Maynard used to play. You got to hear it. It's it's deceiving the sound. You know, it could be bright, but you could also mellow it out. And then I was like, ah, all right. So I went and I found one, and I have not switched back to a anything bigger than that. And my mouthpieces have, have kind of fluctuated just because, like I said, I do have some injuries. So I have to play outside of the, the damaged tissue, the, you know, the permanently scarred tissue, as they say, uh, in order to be able to, to function properly as a, as a trumpet player. But I've definitely worked, and something that Bobby warned me and all the other guys, the older guys warned me, that you're going to have to tone it down. 
You know, you know, you can't be Superman forever. I was like, I got it. It's like, nah. Like I told you at the beginning, in the in the battle between metal and flesh. Mel always wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, I mean, and that's uh, that's the thing, you know, a, a lot of times uh, and people people look for the the equipment to be the you know, the magic bullet, you know, that, that it's going to so it's going to solve everything. You know, if I get the right mouthpiece, it's going to solve it. If I, if I get the right yeah. horn, it's going to solve it. And they're just the tools. And yeah. you can. But you want to make sure you get you get the most efficient tool. You know, it's like, you know, if you need a screwdriver, you need a screwdriver. But having the right size screwdriver for the nail head mm-hmm. is definitely going to make your job a hell of a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree 100 percent. You definitely. Um, I, I, I do believe that a lot. And I don't want to bash any manufacturer because that's how they make their living. And I'm not here to take anybody's money away, you know. But I do believe that you have to get to a certain point before you can get into these little finesse, uh, higher end uh, uh, equipment uh, tools, you know, yeah. uh, because they're great, but they're very specific tools that I don't think are necessary that you can get better results for less if you start off by being more aware of your body and how your body works. And then eventually, once you get to a certain point, a certain level of mastery, then you can be like, okay, I because you know yourself, you can say, well, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit of tension in this area, and I feel that the mouthpiece is inhibiting me, or uh, I know what my sound is like, and, and this instrument isn't doing it for me, or I can feel that in certain registers, this instrument shuts off or gets out of tune, because that's something that we're all different too. You know, I remember a friend of mine great trumpet player from Puerto Rico. He had this horn and he said, this is the best horn I've ever played. You know, he's one of the, he's the top recording guy from Puerto Rico. And I remember um, he, he, and he loved it. And he sounded great on it, you know? And I tried to play on it. And it, to me, it was just one big air ball. I could not get, and I would tell him, I go, how do you do that? I can't do it. And then he would try to play on my stuff and he'd be like, oh my God, how do you play on that? And I go, so we're all different, you know. So that's that's where I see the value of all of these different uh, boutique instruments and, and uh, mouthpiece manufacturers. Uh, but it takes so takes you have to get the, to that point first where you could discern those things. Yeah. So the, the, there is no real magic bullet until you're able to actually use it. I guess is maybe the the right analogy. Yeah. Right. Unless yeah, until you have the right uh, weapon to be able to use that magic bullet there is no real magic bullet for you yeah you gotta be able to aim the damn thing first so. yeah, there you go <laughs> and be able to find the trigger yeah exactly so um let, let's uh let's talk about uh some other stuff here for for a hot sec um you were talking about you know doing powerlifting, and and i i remember you uh like you know being really super heavy into that for a bit and uh are you still lifting now or, or have you backed off of, of that uh, during the past few years? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, 
uh, I, that was my thing. That that was my escape. You know, when I didn't, when I and it just kind of helped me focus and it helped me through some tough times and and um, you know. And I love it. I still keep up with it. I, I watch all the competitions and I still have all my, my iron. I have like almost a thousand pounds worth of plates here. And uh and a and it's set up, you know, for, for if I ever do get back into it. But it's been my son is my youngest child, he's now six, so it's been six years since I kinda just said, eh. You know, and that's mainly because uh they're my my children are my priority above all else. So it was getting to the point where I was doing everything I could with my son and I was still trying to work out and take care of the house and my other kids. And what ended up suffering was my body. Uh, and I started, it was, I think in the span of a week or two weeks, I, I ripped about three or four muscles um, doing, going for maxes in competition. The last one was in competition. Uh, but I remember clear as day, first one was right hamstring in a bench press of all things. I was getting ready to bench uh, five something. And right as I I used my, my hip thrusters and I used my legs to pivot the weight, to push it back up, uh, I just felt the <laughs> racked it. And I was like, oh boy, I already know that because it happened to me before. I was like, ah, oh, crap, all right. So I tried to finish the workout and my legs started getting hot. And then I looked in the mirror and it's just like a bruise from my butt all the way down to my knee, oh, back of my knee. That was a good tear. So that was the first one. Then um, maybe a few days late, a few days later, uh, I went to start to, to yeah, uh, a few days later was the competition. And then I went and I, my spotter wasn't with me. Uh, so I had somebody else spot for me. And what ended up happening was that uh, the spotter didn't know where my positioning was to put the bar before I took it down. So in that moment, I just wanted to get the competition through, get it over with. So I, he unracked it for me, but he put it in a different position. And as I came down, both of my shoulders ripped uh, the supraspinatus muscles. And it 550 just bounced off of my chest. Luckily, I was tight. Um, and it wasn't enough of an injury that I that it just completely crushed me. And the, the, the fear that I felt the, my two shoulders give out, I just drove it, put it back up, went straight to the hospital, and uh, both my supraspinatus and, and both shoulders were torn. Mm. So this was all within the span of a week or two weeks. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore because I was beating myself up too much and, and something had to give. And uh, the power of the thing was at the bottom of the total pole at that point. So, yeah. Yeah. so I, I had to stop. And, and then, too, it was, I was too big, man. Uh, to, to push those kind of numbers that I was pushing, I was my biggest. I was 407 pounds. Man. And I, I had a 23-inch neck. And I was dying slowly, literally. I was dying slowly. My blood pressure was 170 over 110. Um, I had severe sleep apnea. Walking in my 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 hallway, I had to walk sideways because I didn't fit. My wife would always laugh at me because I walked down the hallway and I'd be walking like this sideways, <laughs> you know, just red and sweaty. And uh, and and I just I, my health just started falling apart. Yeah. But, but that's also kind of the kind of person I am. When I do something, I go all in. Uh, you know, I, I see it all the way through to the end. 
and and that I was good at it. I was good at the powerlifting, so I pushed it as far as I could. Maybe when these guys get a little bit older and and and, and time is less demanding, I'll be able to get back into it. But I'm pretty far removed from from any kind of lifting, um, uh, especially with with this pandemic. I'm sitting in front of a laptop with my kids, you know, from seven from eight o'clock until about four p.m. You know, just getting them through their homework and getting through their assignments in class and making sure they're not fooling around too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, I remember we we had a conversation about your um, your, your diet and and your health and that you um you did something that that a lot of people viewed as controversial but uh you you got some some great results in terms of your uh, not only your weight loss but but also some of your uh your numbers started to change in, in terms of your <clears throat> your uh, mm-hmm. cholesterol and, and things like that so uh you want to share anything about that with with the good yeah people? yeah so I mean, when I was uh, powerlifting, like I said, I was four. The peak weight was four hundred and seven pounds, and um, I was I was pushing some impressive numbers. I was, you know, like I said in the competition, I got five fifty on bench, over eight hundred. I think it was eight twenty on deadlift and and seven forty five, seven fifty squat. You know, but the price I had to pay was that I was eating anything and everything in sight to put on as much weight as possible to be able to counterbalance the weight that I was moving around. And I was getting really unhealthy. Like I said, my, my blood pressure was through the roof. I wasn't using any PEDs, uh, but I was eating insane amounts of food, you know, and constantly. And it's just like, it was a chore, which a lot of powerlifters will tell you they eating becomes like a second job. And that's kind of where I was at. I was, cause I was pushing numbers. I was chasing numbers. Uh, so I decided when I stopped, I said, well, if I'm going to stop, then I'm not, I'm not keeping up this lifestyle at all anymore. So I started kind of milling around to figure out what I could do to, to start losing weight and nothing really worked. I hated cardio. I always hated cardio. Not my thing. I'm not going to get on an exercise bike, uh, even if they put a gun to my head. So I was just trying to figure it out and I tried different diets and things and Finally, I started really feeling unhealthy. Once I stopped lifting and I wasn't as active anymore, I started feeling really bad. And uh, so I tried going vegetarian. And that one almost killed me. I remember I my blood work was, I did it for three months. And then I went to go to my doctor to get blood, my blood drawn so they could see what was up. And the doctor was like, uh, we need you to see a specialist for cancer and we need to see a specialist for your liver and it's like they freaked out and then they freaked me out too uh so i stopped that and right about that time uh somebody introduced me to uh, uh a guy by the name of dr sean baker and dr sean baker is uh at the time he had been disbarred because some controversial comments he was making Oh, he, not this part. I don't know. I don't know what they what they call it, but when they lose their license, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so he kind of was. He's an athlete. Uh, he still is uh, as a Guinness World Record holding athlete, and he um, was noticing in his fifties that thing. He was always ripped and lean and looked good, very muscular, strong guy, and he just kind of noticed that. It's like, what's going on? I'm not. My hair is falling out, kind of. I'm, I'm not eating more. 
but like I'm not I'm losing my definition. What's up? And we're talking about an elite level athlete and a doctor. So he went keto. Keto didn't do it for him. And then he started doing some more research and he started like uh, reading about the Inuits and about other tribes of people that subsist basically on just animal protein. And that's it. Animal protein and fat and very sparse amounts of vegetables, but really because of the places where they live, they can only eat seals and fish and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's and there's some scientific uh, studies done in the 30s, I believe, uh, two other uh, doctor scientists that um, studied those people in particular. So anyway, so long story short, he says, you know what? I got nothing to lose, man. Let's just try it. So he just started eating steaks. There were other people that were already doing it. And he kind of got in on the movement, the carnivore diet. And uh, so he did it for a year and it didn't take very long. And he started getting ripped again. And he started getting stronger. He started getting faster because he was also a, di- uh, a runner or a biker. I don't remember where it is, but, I, but he, one of those things where he holds Guinness World Records. And uh, he started noticing that he was not needing to sleep as much. He didn't need to eat as much. Um, TMI, but he didn't go to the bathroom as much either, you know, uh, number two. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's like, what's going on? So he just used himself as an experiment. So at the one-year mark of him doing it, he came out on Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan uh, experience. Yeah. And he did an interview with with uh, with, with Joe Rogan. Uh, Sean Baker did an interview, with, and he talked about it for like two or three hours. Put, his, put up all the scientific uh, evidence. And then at the end, he's like, you know what? I'm going to start this right here with you. Anybody that wants to do it with me, let's do this for a year. The carnivore challenge. January 1st, let's do it. Now, mind you, this was the end of, so almost three years now. Uh, and um, he, he came at the right time for me because I was just coming off of the vegetarian thing where I was just, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew what was going on with my body. And uh, so I said, you know what? I feel like I'm dying anyway. So if I'm going to die, I'm going to die eating a steak. Let's just do this. I'm going to go out my way. Yeah. And, and uh, so I remember January 1st, I, I went to the store. I bought a bunch of steaks, a bunch of chicken, a bunch of eggs, a bunch of cheese. I mean, everything that everybody tells you not to eat, uh, that's where I was at as far as animal, uh, uh, animal protein and animal products are concerned. No milk. Milk has too much sugar. But everything else, from the rootin' to the tootin', I was all about it. And sh- within two months, that feeling of of dread that like something bad was gonna happen to me left. And uh, but I was I wasn't losing weight, but I was getting smaller. And I was like, okay, two months. The first month, he said, give it thirty days. That was what it was, the thirty day challenge, the thirty day carnivore challenge, and it's it goes it happens every year now. 30-day carnivore. Do it for 30 days. You're not going to die in 30 days. Your levels are not going to get super messed up. You're not going to get cancer and die. You're not going to get a heart attack from eating steaks for 30 days, right? So what do you have to lose? I said, okay. So after 30 days, I didn't die. I felt better. I started looking better. And then I started noticing the energy levels coming up again. And little by little, maybe about after four months, that's when the actual weight loss started happening. You lose weight initially because all the crap that we eat, that we're exposed to, uh, makes you retain water, mm-hmm. right? So the initial weight loss is just excreting that massive amounts of liquid that we carry in our body, you know, and you're not eating any carbs or anything that's inflammatory by eating a steak, 
So what ends up happening is that, that the, infl- the inflammatory markers go down. And as they go down, you start releasing all this stuff. And that's what happened with me. I, you know, I, was, I was rotting from the inside out just from not taking care of myself. You think you're healthy when you see some big guy walking in and say, oh, look at that guy, man. He's got to be healthy. But nine times out of ten, he's probably not. You know, not 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 if he's like super huge, like like I was. You know, I mean, like I said, my neck was twenty three inches around. You know, that some people don't have thighs that are yeah. that my. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't have a thigh that's that big. You know, and I that was my neck. My legs were thirty six inches around each one. You know, my chest was sixty six and a half from from you know my shoulders. Yeah. I, I mean, it was I was a freak show. You know. So the weight started coming down quickly and I felt better. My blood pressure started really coming down because that was my blood pressure, 170 over 110 with blood pressure medication. Man. I'm telling you, man, it's like I, I would, hey, it was bad. You know, my apnea was horrible too. I, the reason why I found out I had apnea was because one day I was driving with the family and all of a sudden, middle of the day, three o'clock, I'm driving, get to a red light. <laughs> Passed out within a matter of seconds. Man. And all of a sudden, I hear my wife. She starts nudging me. She goes, hey, 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 what's going on? I was like, what? What's up? Goes, you fell asleep. Light's green. Go. And that freaked me out because I had the car full of everybody. All my kids. Everybody was in there. Yeah. So went to the doctor, figured that one out. But with the diet, with the weight change, you know, my neck, the, all the muscles in my neck and the visceral fat that I had in my abdomen and, and the fat everywhere, it just started melting away and it, it, made, it made it so my body could heal itself. And that's where I've been, you know, I with the pandemic, obviously, it's a little hard. It's all these kids and I, they, I, don't, I don't force them to eat the way I eat because I don't know that it's necessarily healthy for a child to eat that way. Mm-hmm. I want them to have a full balanced diet. Right. You know what I mean? And and then when they get older and their bodies are fully matured, maybe we'll talk about it, but they're, they're fully aware of what I do and they see me do it and they giggle and stuff. And if anything, I, scientifically, it's been proven that the size and strength of, of, of a society is based on how much they, how much animal protein they consume, right? So in, in more underdeveloped parts of the world, there isn't, you can't afford it. So you see them, they're smaller. But in other parts of the world where there's more money, where there's more affluence, you can afford steaks. Or the or also sociologically, they're eating more meat, whether it's red meat or fish or poultry, but they're eating more animal protein and they're bigger and they're stronger. So they definitely have a lot, a, a lot more uh, animal protein in their diet than they used to. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've seen the difference. I mean, they're... The skin is amazing. The hair is amazing. Their intelligence. A lot of that's genetic too, but I think that if I had gone the way I was going and just let them kind of eat whatever they wanted, they, they wouldn't be as healthy as they are now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's, that's a great story. And, you know, for people that are that are interested more in that, they can certainly do some research. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, you, you have some some places they could point, you could point people to if they wanted to learn more about uh, yeah, yeah. there's definitely if, if they if they ever want to 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 learn about it more, you know, there's as time has gone by, gone by through the years, more people are jumping on the on the movement, the carnivore movement. Uh, but we have an amazing web web community uh, on Facebook called uh, 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 that's a carnivore diet 
for for just a, like a support group. It, it was Dr. Sean Baker was the one that started it. And it grew from like just a handful of us to like now it's like 50, 60,000 worldwide, you know. And the more people are into it, the, the more we know, the more we learn from each other, which is an amazing thing because if somebody has an issue, then we've been around already for like three years now. Or yeah, almost three years, three years. So, you know, chances are that somebody already went through that. And, you know, we get together and we just brainstorm and we, that's another thing I like about the group too and the group of people, everybody is very much into knowledge. It's not just BS, you know, propaganda about whatever, no disrespect to, to, to the vegan movement or the vegetarians, but there's, there's a lot of science to, to back up what we're doing. We have a lot of healthy people that are flourishing and growing and healing their bodies like I did as a result of it. Yeah. yeah well, certainly check that out. You know, information, uh, more information is good for you. So, oh, uh, yeah. Information is power. Yeah. So let's uh, let's hop back over to the world of the trumpet. Um, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> you have had uh, you've had a great career, man. You know, for for as young as you is, um, <laughs> you know, you uh, you spent uh, a number of years with uh, with Pancho Sanchez. Yeah. Um, uh, you were um, you were on one of the Grammy award winning albums, weren't you? Nominated Grammy nominated. Grammy, the, the, nominated. Grammy, the Grammy award winning was uh, one called Sold Out. Mm-hmm. And that one was right before I joined. That was probably the record before I joined. Uh, but then we did a live at Montreux, Poncho live at Montreux, Poncho Sanchez live at Montreux. And that one got picked up and, and was nominated. We didn't make it all the way, but we got pretty close. Wow. And then uh, that so one's a live DVD and live uh, live CD pulled so, from the DVD. Yeah, you 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 know you toured you toured all over with with that band, and uh, then uh, of course uh, the. For for most people, you know, for if you're if you're a trumpet player, uh, especially of uh, of a certain age, and I won't say what that age is, um, <laughs> Dusty, it, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, the dream of uh, the vast majority of us was uh, to have the opportunity to uh, play in the Maynard Ferguson band. And you had the opportunity to do that, uh, you know, during during the uh, the last few years of, of Maynard's uh, career, uh, which I have to say, you know, sometimes you say, oh, at the end of somebody's career. And it's like, you know, that's when that's when they're on, on the on the shits. But I mean, he was still going strong up to the end. And mm-hmm. uh, but you you were at that that very that very last stage, that very the end of the era of uh, Maynard and um, you two had kind of a, a special relationship, um, you know, so g- can you share some stuff about, you know, you know, playing with the boss and, and uh, you know, what you learned and, and uh, what your big takeaways were from your, from your time with him. All right. I hope you enjoyed this first half of my time with Seraphin Aguilar, some great stuff. And in the next episode, he's going to talk a lot about his time with Maynard Ferguson and his involvement with the pop smash tune Havana. So we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. 
And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang. <laughs>